Hello. Hi. Wow. I think that's probably like. <clears throat> oh, pardon me. It's probably the loudest and maybe most enthusiastic I have said. I really meant to say hello. Because if you've ever been to um, Toronto Pearson Airport, the speaker lady recording that tells you like this flight has been delayed yes whoever she is um we discovered that she says hello like the way she says hello is just funny and i know it's a recording but it's just it just goes like hello and me and my mom and my sister have this inside joke of you know whenever we say hello we say it in that way and it's it's just funny so hello um how are you doing i'm emmy by the way um, and you're listening to Foodie Facts on Shared Life Radio. And yeah, like, hope everyone's doing okay. Hope everyone's staying safe, preferably staying home, because you know how things are still with this pandemic and things are opening up. It's currently phase two, I believe. I don't know anymore. You know, it, it is kind of nice and revealing. <sighs> revealing, relieving. Wow. Relieving to be able to actually go out even though th- th- there still are precautions, but it is nice. It is nice to to be outside, to be a little bit more human than before. Anyways, I do hope that everyone is staying safe, is washing your hands, wearing your mask. Please do, because I don't really judge people, but please, 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 please wear a mask. Please. I know it's not easy. It's kind of hard to breathe, but it's not the end of the world. Like just do it do it for the essential workers out there who have to like wear it five plus hours a day straight that's a lot so um i think for those of us who are just you know like myself going in and out of a store it's really not a lot so it's it's for your safety and it's also for the safety of others so wear your mask guys this this episode has nothing to do with covid but it does have to do with african-american chefs uh so essentially um i'm hoping to do a couple episodes that highlight chefs throughout history um you know people that we necessarily don't really know about who have contributed a lot to the history of culinary arts and food and cuisine in general and i think it's really important to know about these people and what they've done because a it's really interesting and it's cool to know what, about what they did and b plays such an important factor to what we are right now what we eat what we love to eat and the food that we know it has stemmed from somewhere and someone has brought it to us and it's just really important to know the origins to you know acknowledge that and, you know it's, it's respectful it's it's more beneficial to you because you you know about this and from having that knowledge you can build on that further on and and that's really great so for example this episode i will be highlighting three african-american chefs and by no means there's there's these are not all that there is there's a ton more um individuals in the black community especially in america who have done a significant amount of work towards like north american cuisine i guess you could say or what there is uh, to be included in that area and this episode i'm focusing on three main people and i'm just going to give you a very like light summary about them and what they've done i do encourage you to kind of read more about on them and probably try a recipe or two from these people because um that they sound amazing honestly they sound really great
first person we have is James Hemmings. James Hemmings was the very first American to train as a chef in France. And this is just American in general, not first African American. He was the first American person to train as a chef in France in 1784 at the age of 19. He actually accompanied Thomas Jefferson to Paris where he learned to cook. And I'm just gonna give you a little bit of a background on Hemmings. He was born in Virginia in 1765 and he worked as a cook for Thomas Jefferson on his plantation, which was called Monticello. Now, Hemmings was born into slavery. He lived much of his life enslaved, and he came to Monticello when he was nine years old along with his siblings and their mom, Elizabeth Hemmings. Monticello was part of the Wills estate, and they were in some way related to Wills himself because John Wills, the owner, I guess, um, was actually the father of six of Elizabeth Hemings children. So in a way, James was actually a half-brother to Jefferson's wife, Martha Wales Jefferson. So there was that kind of tie and connection between Jefferson and Hemings. So as I mentioned before, Hemings was a cook for Jefferson. In 1784, they went to Paris. He took cooking lessons from chefs there and was paid wages by Jefferson. And he cooked for the functions that Jefferson hosted at his residence, which in that time acted as the American embassy in France. Now in 1789, they returned to America and Hemings continued to work for Jefferson. He, he followed him on trips to New York, to Vermont, and to Philadelphia, where actually they settled for a bit in Philly uh, before Jefferson decided to move back to Virginia. Now going back a bit, in Paris, not to say that racism didn't exist, but Hemings was more of a free man there. He could do what he would have liked. He could walk the streets as sort of a free man. And the same thing in Philly, he, you know, Philly did not allow for slavery. And so Hemings was more of a free man than he was back in Virginia. So when Jefferson decided to move back to Virginia, Hemings was pretty reluctant to do that, as is expected. So what Hemings did was made a deal with Jefferson. If he can find someone to train and replace him as a chef, then Hemings would earn his freedom. And Jefferson agreed. Now, this was what was described as a manumission or affranchisement, which is the act of an owner freeing their slave. So Jefferson wrote up a contract, said, yes, if James Hemings finds a replacement, trains him well, then he is free to go. He is a free man. Hemings earned his freedom at the age of 31. He went on to travel, and according to some sources, uh, he did go back to France for a bit, and possibly went to Spain, and eventually kind of settled in Baltimore where he worked in a restaurant. Of course, Thomas Jefferson did become president, and he requested to work for him once more as a free man. But this part was a little bit tricky where, you know, Hemings, he felt obligated to have to go work for him, that, that was how he interpreted that. And so he, he refused at the beginning and then, you know, said, okay, I'll, I'll come and I'll, I'll cook at Monticello one last time. So he did come maybe about for a year or a couple months and then he left. And actually after a couple months uh, of him leaving, he sadly committed suicide at the age of 36. And that was quite sad. He was a great chef. He knew so much and... He was responsible for bringing a lot of, or rather introducing a lot of French dishes into the US. And he cooked these dishes for Jefferson and his guests. And just a, just a couple really of foods that he brought back were, of course, French fries, 
mac and cheese, meringue, creme brulee, and ice cream. And specifically firm and whipped ice cream because soft serve was already a thing in the US. And one more dessert, which tends to pop up a lot when you research James Hemmings, is snow eggs. And snow eggs is a very classic French dessert. It's poached meringues in a custard sauce, and it's also known as the floating island dessert. So the snow eggs is actually one of the four recipes that survived today from James Hemmings. And you can actually find this recipe preserved by the Jefferson family in the papers of Thomas Jefferson in the special collections at the University of Virginia Library. You can also actually visit the very kitchen in which Hemmings worked at in Monticello. There's even a foundation that's been built and named after him, the James Hemmings Foundation, which is dedicated to remembering, preserving, and upholding African-American contributions to American food and drink. So this was, this was really interesting to read about because it's kind of eye-opening to know how many I guess dishes and dishes that you already know or maybe myself uh, speaking for myself um dishes that i know really originated from french cuisine i had in the culinary world for a while now it is interesting to see how that has traveled across continents and kind of been adapted or integrated into other countries in their own way and it's all thanks to this one person which is pretty amazing and i'm, I'm sure Along the way, there have been other several influencers of who have brought uh, different cuisines together, and it's not to discredit them or anything, but you know, the fact that at the age of 19, only 19, like you went to train as a chef in a foreign country, that came back and still made all these dishes, that's pretty amazing. So I was really fascinated by the snow eggs uh, dessert, and I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of a synopsis of what the dessert is and how it's made. Obviously you do need eggs, you need a lot of eggs. You have to separate the whites and yolks and beat the whites until they turn into firm peaks, to which then you would add sugar and flavoring to them. In a saucepan, you would heat milk and sugar and scoop in that firm peaks into kind of like, you, you kind of make like football shaped puffs out of them and place them in the heated milk and then cook them until they're just firm. The yolks on the other hand, you make into a custard. You mix it with sugar and warm milk and you have to consistently whisk this mixture because uh, you don't want the eggs to scramble when eggs and something like especially hot liquid comes into contact you have to keep mixing it or else the eggs will scramble continuously stirring this mixture as it sits on low heat after a while it's going to thicken and turn into custard that is then left to cool and chill for a couple hours and then you assemble your dessert and from the pictures that I've seen, it kind of looks like it's a bowl with maybe two-thirds filled with custard and about three to four little floating meringues on top. So if you're ever looking for um, a very interesting different recipe or dessert to make, um, I highly suggest no eggs. It, it looks really interesting and it, it sounds very delicious actually. So, next person. <laughs> So our next person is George Washington Carver, and he is an agricultural scientist and inventor behind the invention of a lot of products using peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans. And yes, you heard me correctly, peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans. I just want to start off with saying agricultural science is a lot. <laughs> um, 
I've personally studied agri science. I mean, I haven't studied it like for years, but I have studied it for maybe three years. Three, yes, I think three. In high school, we did agri science. Um, you, you had a choice between agri science, food and nutrition, well, kind of home ec, and I think technical drawing, which not a lot of people did. Kind of most of the boys did technical drawing, but I just couldn't couldn't comprehend it. It was not my thing. Um, maths plus lines, no, sorry. But props to those who can do it. it. I think it would be fun if I had a proper teacher. But anyways, um, <clears throat> not the point. Agri science was tough, and I can just imagine from it being tough in just high school with the basics to actually having a degree in it. Hats off to those who do agri-science. You need to know not only about plants, but also animals, and also the relationship between plants and animals. Um, it's a lot of science, it's a lot of remembering and understanding plants, which are beings that cannot speak as well as animals, even though I really wish they could. It is a tough job. And for those of you who may be wondering, why didn't you do agri-science? You know, you love food. Um. I left when one of our assignments was to raise chickens. And while you may think, Emmy, that's a fun thing to do, why would you leave? Because chickens are cute. Chickens are cute. They're annoyingly loud, but they are cute. But here's the catch. We had to get chicks, raise them, cute, love it, take care of them, feed them, you know, you can name them if you want. But. <clears throat> You also have to kill them. Yeah. Um, you have to kill them, pluck them, wash them, and then sell them because this is marketing. You're, you're doing a business. You are rearing something and you need to sell it. That is agriculture. That was one of the main reasons I actually dropped the subject. Um, but yes. That and it was a lot of weeding. And I, lo I love doing garden work but I don't know how to feel about it at 8 o'clock in the morning when I just I'm barely awake and I have to sit in the sun and, and weed it wasn't fun man so anyways back to George Washington Carver the main reason we're here Carver got a master's in agri science from Iowa State University and he went on to teach and conduct research at Tuskegee University for a number of years Carver had a tough childhood, very tough. He, along with his family, he was kidnapped by slave raiders during the Civil War, and then they were sold to other people in Kentucky. He lost his father in an accident, and he was separated from his mother and sister. He and his brother were then taken in by Moses Carver and Susan Carver, uh, their slave masters, and because of George's physical conditions, he was a, a frail and sickly kid, so he wasn't really able to help out physically in the farms, so instead, Susan Carver actually taught him how to cook and do other things like embroidery, laundry, and gardening, which obviously he took a very big interest towards. Around the age of 11, he left the farm to attend school, and after that, he continued to travel for about 10 plus years in order to keep learning and building his skills. So he applied to the Highland College in Kansas, and he was actually accepted, but his acceptance got revoked as soon as the administration realized that he was a black individual, which is totally unfair. Um, but he did get enrolled into Simpson College instead to actually study art and piano, because he believed that maybe getting a degree in the arts may lead him somewhere. 
but then again one of his professors actually encouraged him to pursue something that he likes and so he applied to the iowa state agricultural school and he studied botany there carver was actually the first african-american person to get a bachelor of science degree this was in 1894 and as i mentioned earlier after he earned his master's he went on to work for tuskegee institute and here what he really wanted to do was do a lot of research to help the southern farmers kind of help them out in how they can be more sustainable and efficient in their work field coming along with the task of that he had to manage school farms teach students and be a part of a number of committees and councils or the main thing that would really pop up when you research george washington carver is his inventions he was very successful in providing farmers with more effective and sustainable means of farming so just one of the many examples was instead of using fertilizer to enrich the land use swamp muck but the main one i really want to talk about is crop rotation so crop rotation is the agricultural practice of not growing plants where similar ones would have grown during the previous year and that aids in preventing pests and it actually optimizes the soil's nutritional composition so what this means is um, i'll give you an example one year if you plant corn corn requires a lot of nitrogen from the soil so if you keep planting corn and corn and corn year after year after year you're going to realize like your your yield is very low your crops aren't doing well and that's because the soil is very depleted of nitrogen corn being a, a plant that is highly dependent on nitrogen it's taking a lot of that out of the soil eventually that soil is not going to have as much nitrogen as it did before so instead what if you planted soybean plants after the year of corn soybean like a lot of other plants is a nitrogen fixing plant what that means is it doesn't require a lot of nitrogen of course not as much as corn does the roots of the soybean plant has nodes and these nodes house bacteria called nitrogen fixing bacteria these bacteria have the ability to take atmospheric nitrogen that's found in the air and turn it into soluble nitrogen in the soil so that the plant can actually use it remember now plants can't actually take nitrogen from the air they can't use that they can't access that like they do carbon dioxide um, so this bacteria that they house actually helps them have a soluble source of nitrogen or at least have a soluble source of nitrogen in the soil so after that year of your soybean plants when you plant your corn back your soil is going to be great it's not going to be depleted of nitrogen because the soybean plants have enabled there to be an addition of nitrogen back into the soil so overall crop rotation helps to maintain a balanced nutritional soil composition with this concept in mind, at that time, a lot of the southern farmers were planting cotton year after year, and eventually that caused nutrition depletion in the soil, and so they had a lot of low yields. What Carver encouraged them to do was plant nitrogen-fixing plants, so peanuts, soybeans, and sweet potatoes, and then after a couple of years of doing this, then go back to cotton, and of course, the yields were much higher than before. Another little fun fact was that Carver actually made his own little mobile classroom which he called the Jessup wagon and in here he had a mobile lab to demonstrate soil chemistry to farmers and in order to help explain his theories 
I think that's pretty cool that you have a very physical, real way to show, you know, to kind of put your theories in life and into effect so that other people can understand them. Now, on the other hand of this great success of planting cotton through crop rotation was a very big issue. Because you needed to fix the soil composition, you planted peanuts and soybeans and sweet potatoes, and then you got your cotton. That meant that there was a lot of peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans left. And naturally, Garber is like, what are we going to do with a low ton of peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans? Well, we're going to find an alternative use to it. So he went to further inventions. From sweet potatoes, he made sweet potato flour, vinegar, dyes, and paints. And from peanuts alone, just, just peanuts alone, he developed over 300 food, industrial, and commercial products. Over 300. That's a lot. So not all of these ideas were placed into effect right away, but that is a lot of ideas to develop at the very least. And some of these were Worcestershire sauce, cooking oils, paper, cosmetics from peanuts, soaps from peanuts, and peanut-based medicines. So for example, antiseptics or laxatives. And actually, in 1921, Carver appeared before the Ways and Means Committee of the House of Representatives to seek tariff protection on behalf of the peanut industry, and he got it approved, which led him to be called or to be known as the Peanut Man. So he is the OG Peanut Man. So this is not to be confused with Mr. Peanut um, of the Planters Company, who is actually Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smythe. It's a really long name, but uh, George Washington Carver was the Peanut Man. Fast forward to his final years, Carver still traveled to the South, not only to continue helping Southern farmers, but also to promote racial harmony. And he even traveled to India, where he was able to talk about nutrition alongside Gandhi. In 1943, Carver passed away, and President Roosevelt signed for his monument to be erected, and also he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. And so today, in Diamond, Missouri, you can find the George Washington Carver National Monument. Our final person today is Edna Lewis. Now, before I start talking about Edna Lewis, I would please, please, please ask of you to just Google her name right now on your phone, on your laptop, wherever you are. Just Google the name Edna Lewis because this woman is a soulful person. She is absolutely gorgeous. She is so cute. She is like the epitome of like a soulful cook. There's just one picture of her in like a field of sunflowers and it's just like, oh my god. But she is definitely one of those people who you look at her and you're like, wow, you must have been a special person. And for sure she was. She definitely was. Edna Lewis was a renowned American chef and an author who is really important in the sphere of southern cooking. Now, Lewis was also from Virginia, like Hemings, and she was born in a farming settlement called Freetown. Her grandfather was an emancipated slave, and she learned a lot of cooking from her mom, but they didn't have full access to culinary utensils. And this is what was interesting. Obviously, of course, not having full access to these, they improvised, and they improvised with skill. Like, they used coins to measure ingredients. So, 
pennies is one measurement, dimes are another, and so forth. Around 16, she left Freetown to move to Washington, D.C., and then eventually New York. And fun fact, in D.C., she actually worked on Roosevelt's second presidential campaign, which was in 1936. Now, Edna Lewis loved to cook. In New York, she would always throw dinner parties for her friends, and John Nicholson, who was one of those friends, opened up a restaurant called the Cafe Nicholson with Lewis as the intended cook. Now, before, before being a cook, she worked in a lot of areas, of course. I just mentioned she worked on a presidential campaign, she worked in a laundromat, she worked as a seamstress before even coming to a restaurant. And definitely she succeeded in that area. She served very simple yet soulful and southern inspired food. And that attracted many, many people, including a lot of famous faces, for example, Richard Avedon, uh, Marlon Brando, and Tennessee Williams. She even took up a catering business and she taught cooking lessons, which she continued when she moved to South Carolina. Her very last job before retiring as a chef was at Brooklyn's Gage and Tallner. Around the mid-1990s, uh, Edna Lewis and some of her friends actually started what was called the Society for the Revival and Preservation of Southern Food. And they did this in order to share reproduce and preserve the older methods of cooking southern foods. Somewhere in here, she broke her leg actually and she had to stop cooking for a while, but that gave her time to put together a cookbook, the Edna Lewis Cookbook, and later in 1976 she put out another one called The Taste of Country Cooking. And these were one of the very first cookbooks to be published by an African American woman. She not only includes recipes in there, but she also includes personal memoirs of her childhood and even some histories about southern food. And I think that's amazing. Um, it's always nice to see a cookbook or maybe even a recipe blog, which I find a lot of these days, that have a little bit of a personal touch to them. It's not just, here's the recipe. I mean, it, not that that is bad at all, but it is nice sometimes to have, even if it's one line or two, of just something that's a little bit more than surface area list of ingredients. It, it gives it... It gives the recipe more connection to maybe you and I think with that it kind of like when you make the recipe you in turn have made a connection with the creator or the cook or the chef because now you have took what they've put out in the world and you've made it and now you get to feel how they felt so I think that's cool Edna Lewis has achieved many awards some of which are the Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Association of Culinary Professionals and the Barbara Trock President's Award. She has also been inducted into the KitchenAid Cookbook Hall of Fame. Yes ma'am, you go. She actually published four books in total and the other two that I haven't mentioned before are In Pursuit of Flavor and The Gift of Southern Cooking. In 2006, Edna Lewis passed away at the age of 89 at her home in Georgia, but she definitely left behind a huge legacy. Some of her very popular recipes were simmered greens with cornmeal dumplings, baked tomatoes with crusty bread, seafood gumbo, and buttermilk cookies and blackberry cobbler. I think one of uh, Lewis's main focuses was to make fresh, simple, and flavorful food, actually. A lot of bios that are written about her online, at least, um, I haven't gotten the chance to read any of her books, but they do mention that she took a lot of focus 
where she put a lot of focus into creating very distinct flavors and she would work towards creating these flavors that she would have remembered when she was a child so for example if this dish did not taste like how it used to then that's it we're starting over again and we're really going into detail with what to put in this dish to make it taste exactly how it was when i was smaller when i had it and i think that's interesting that's interesting to see how memory and food comes into play and that connection because think of it the very first time that you are eating something or that you're trying something you are essentially creating a memory and the next time that you eat it you remember the memory that you created before i i just think that's that's really fascinating the fact that you know I don't, I don't know if this ever happens to anyone else but you can have a certain smell wherever that is even if it's in the kitchen or you walk by someone's house or you walk past a ba like a bakery and just a one whiff that can take you back like ages it happens to me all the time it doesn't have to be food it can just be a smell and i think the this, this same thing happens with taste. I can taste something and sometimes it's so exact. Like it would be the taste of that thing that I had like seven years ago in this house and it's just, it's insane what, what that does to you um, and how food can do that to you too. So I, I think it's, it's worth making that connection and uh, paying more attention to it because then I think it opens up an entire new universe for you. I think what, what Edna Lewis has done is create a really, really uh, base foundation for Southern cooking and that in turn has probably paved the way for a lot more chefs out there who have picked up after her and um, continued that legacy because Southern cooking is, is a pretty big one I think, especially in the US. I mean I've tried some nuances of it but i haven't tried i don't think i've tried authentic southern cuisine and i would definitely love to one day it's it's, it's on my list of things to try or cuisines to try and um i definitely encourage you to at the very least take a look at edna lewis like um i think she's definitely an important figure in history as are the previous two persons um james hemmings and George Washington Garver. It's nice to do research sometimes because a lot, well, most of the times I, f I find myself, especially now when I'm home all the time, it's really hard to keep myself occupied in terms of like having to constantly do something like whether it's cooking or cleaning. And I mean, I, lo I love doing those, but when I'm done those, I'm like, what else do I do? And I, w I would like to assume that a lot of other people are also feeling at times uninspired or not motivated to actually do stuff and i think in those times um it's okay it's honestly really okay to not have to constantly be creating things but instead you can take that time and just be inspired we don't just create things out of thin air i think everything comes with a little bit of an inspiration from something else whether we consciously are aware of it or not and I think in those downtimes, you can you can do some research and just read upon something. Read up like on these people. Um, you know, if you're interested in a certain cuisine, I mean, just instead of like cooking a dish or feeling like you have to cook a dish, um, read upon like the chef 
or where it came from or who's the person behind it i think um that sometimes can really inspire you to then maybe make the dish another time so that's my my little spiel for today is that do some research research isn't always bad it has such a bad connotation to it i think um but I think when you really are interested or it's something that you are interested in genuinely, it's more fun. Thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I hope you did learn something or I hope I sparked some amount of interest in, in talking about these people, in talking about these chefs. Um, hope that you come across some other persons that are of interest to you and what they've done. Thank you for listening and... Keep on listening to Sharon Life Radio. We have some amazing podcasts that are all up on Spotify. So like Jamie's Movies of the Day. If you're into film, give this podcast a listen. We have Frontline Discourse with Meltran. This is a great podcast. It's fairly new and talking about social environmental issues. We also have the College Days podcast with Samina Kalek. And it's an awesome podcast, especially if you're in college yourself. Uh, she does interviews with persons that are that have been in the college experience or in and around that area and it's uh, it's a great podcast to hear a lot of perspectives of different people so i definitely encourage you to check those podcasts out and there are many more um our handle is at shared life radio on instagram and we do have a website so check that out as well Thank you guys for listening and I hope you are staying well, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye guys!